specifics how to meditate on Shri Krishna, we have a few things that we need to understand. Like, why this meditation on the form of God? We call that Rup Dhyan. Rup means the form and Dhyan means to meditate or keep in the mind. So why is Rup Dhyan so important? Because in fact, there are many different types of meditation. 
that have nothing to do with meditating on the form of God. Many people are interested in meditation, but not everybody is interested in meditating on the form of God. But this week I'll be speaking specifically about meditating on the form of God. Sakar Bhagwan. So why Rupyan? Before that we have to understand that since there are so many different ways of worshipping God and meditating is only one of those ways, why is meditation worthy of seven entire speeches, setting aside all other types of bhakti that one could be doing, why am I focusing only on meditation? And before that we have to understand, why would we do any form of worship? Meditation or otherwise, what is the point of worshipping God? And along with that we have to understand, with what do we worship God? So we'll start back here, a few steps back from actually discussing the practical points of how to meditate on the form of God. We'll start with understanding why should we do any form of worship of God. We'll start in the Vedas where we always have to start because that's the foundation of all of the spiritual knowledge not only of Sanatana Dharma, but you can say the whole world, since it's the original spiritual knowledge of the earth. So in Vedas, we have 1,180 Upanishads. It's part of Ved. And in the Upanishads, these types of things are described. Why to worship God? Who are we? What is the aim of our life? And out of all those 1,180 Upanishads, a few are very important. One of those which are given prime importance is Shvetashvata Upanishad. So Shvetashvata Upanishad says, Charam Pradhanam Amritaksharam Haracharatmana Vishate Deva Ekah Tasya Bhidhyanat Yojanat Tattvabhavat Bhuyaschante Vishwamaya Nivritti This mantra starts by telling us that there are three things that exist and out of those three we are one. And other than us there's only two other things that exist. One is God and what is the world. We are referred here in this mantra as Akshar. The world is referred to as Chad. And God is referred to as Ish. Ish means the ruler of. So he is the ruler of both Chad and Akshar. Chad means that which is temporary, degrades, does not have a stable existence. And akchar means that which never changes, can never be damaged or caused to change form, that is akchar. We are akchar because we are divine souls. God is also akchar, but he's not being referred to with this word in this mantra. 
we are akchar as compared with the world, because the world is completely unstable. Nothing ever stays the same in this world. We also forget that we're the soul, and we get swept along with the currents of this world. We think we're going up and down too. Everything in the world goes up and down, up and down. Our fortunes go up and down, meaning we have good luck, then we have bad luck. Our bank accounts and investments go up and down, along with the stock market. Our sports teams go up and down. Sometimes they win, most times they don't. Everything in the world goes up and down. And as long as we forget that we are the soul and we identify ourselves as being the physical body which is related to everything in this world, then our moods also go up and down. But actually we are akchad. It's the world that's changing around us. We're not changing. We're that point in the middle of the circle. You know, if a circle is spinning, there's a point of stillness in the middle that doesn't move. That's us as souls. We're that point of stillness. Akchar. We're unchangeable. The world around us appears chaotic because it's in a constant state of change. Nothing here lasts forever. Even the good thing that you get through your good luck or your hard work or however you want to look at it, even those good things will not stay in your hands forever. They also finish. Sarve chayanta nichaya patananta samuchraya Sanyoga viprayoganta maranantancha jivanam Our scriptures say that everything in this world is chad. Everything from the moment it is born, from the moment something is created or manifested, it begins degrading and moving towards its death. Something as simple as a sandcastle, you go to the beach and build a sandcastle. From the moment you've created that sandcastle, grains of sand start falling off of it. You know it's not going to last forever. From the moment it was created, it's moving towards its death. Everything in the world is like that. Our body is like that. From the moment our body was born, it's been gradually moving towards death. When will that final wave come that washes the sandcastle away for good? When our bodies continually degrading, but when will that day come, that moment come where our body is actually finished? That we don't know. But one thing is for sure, it's continuously moving towards that point. You create a clay pot from the moment it's created, even if it lasts for thousands of years, eventually that clay pot will return into mitti. It returns back into the earth from whence it came. So this is the world. Everything is temporary. Anything that you can enjoy will only be enjoyed temporarily because eventually, even if the thing doesn't finish, your interest in the thing will finish. You'll get bored of it. You'll need something else. Every sweet meeting ends in separation and everything that is born must die. 
Gita says this as well. Jatasyai dhruvo mrityur Mritam janma mritasyacha Dhruvam janma mritasyacha Whatever is born must die And after dying it's reborn In other words that clay pot You gave birth to it You created it Then it died eventually That sand and earth and clay it was made of Went back to its original form, the earth But then it can be made into something else again So it's reborn This is the world However we Ajo nityam shashvato yam purano Nahanyate hanyamane sharire This same statement comes in Gita and in Shvetashvatar Upanishad It means we are not killed by the physical death of our body Our body is chad, it is temporary But we are akchad so we are eternal. In fact, we were never born. And we will never die. God never created us, even though we call Him our Father. But in this relationship between the Father and all of His children, the children are the same age as the Father. It doesn't happen in the world. It's impossible in the world. How can the father be the same age as his child? Yet we are the same age as our Divine Father. Because we call God our Father, our Divine Mother, because He is just giving life to us all the time, but never started giving life to us. He's always been inside of us, giving, maintaining our life, you can say, within our very soul the soul of our soul. But that day never started. There never was a time when we didn't exist. So we're as old as God. It means we've been here forever, just like Him. So this is Aksha, the souls, Chari, the world, which we'll actually call Maya. Because what is the world made of? It's made of an energy, and that energy is called Maya or Prakriti. We call it Maya. It means the material energy. So just like your sand castle was made out of sand, your clay pot that you made was made out of earth, it's made out of something. The something it's made of is permanent. But the form you created it into, the sand castle or the pot, that's not permanent. Similarly, the universe and all the shapes and forms in this universe, it's not permanent. But the energy that it's made of is permanent. That energy is called Maya. Nasato vidyate bhavo na bhavo vidyate sata. Gita says an energy cannot be created or destroyed. Whatever exists now must always have existed because energy can be made out of nothing. And if it exists now, it will continue to exist forever because energy cannot be destroyed either. So Maya is an eternal power of God 
which God activates, then it takes the form of the universe. And when he deactivates it, it's like the wave washing away the sand castle. The whole universe dissolves. But it dissolves back into a seed of the universe. So all the energy returns to a subtle form of that energy. It's called Mool Prakriti Maya. The original seed, the original source of all the physical energy of this universe. So that original cosmic energy, that has also been here forever and will always remain. This means that the cycle of creation and dissolution of the universe is also eternal. It never began. If we've been here forever and God has been here forever and Maya has been here forever and Maya has been going through this eternal cycle of Srishti and Pralaya, creation and dissolution, then we have been taking birth after birth since eternity somewhere or another in this Srishti, in this creation. And when there's a Pralaya, then we get a break just as Maya becomes dormant during the dissolution of the universe, the souls who have not attained God also become inactive and have no awareness during that time. And then God decides, okay, I'm going to again activate Maya because all of these souls, they're just in this inactive state, like in a state of pending within me. So what's the use of such an existence where they have no awareness of anything and they can't perform any actions. So let me produce the universe and let the souls go out and take birth. Then they can be aware and active and perform actions and pursue their goal. So now you understand about Chad and Akchad, Chad Maya the universe, Akchar, the souls. Then there's God, who is each. He's the third eternal tattva, or existence. He is the each of both Char and Akchar. Tadatmanam vishate deva ekaha. One Supreme God is each of both Char and Akchar. Same thing is said in the Gita. Dvavimau purushau loke charash chakchar evacha. There's Char and there's Akchar and then there's Uttama purushasvanya paramatme tudahirita. Yolo tatrayamavishya vibhartyavyaya ishwaraha Yasmat charamati toha makcharada pichotama atosmi loke vedecha prathita purushotama Shri Krishna explains in the Gita that he is uttam purush. He is the supreme divine personality of God because he is supreme, he is superior to both Char and Akchar. He is superior to Char Maya and Akchar Jeev, souls. 
He is the ruler of both. How is he the ruler? Well, he is the one who has to activate Maya. Maya is his power. Maya can't do anything without God. Mayam tu praktim vidyan mayinan tu maheshwaram Shvetashvatra Upanishad says this Maya is God's power. So when God decides, then the universe is manifested. And when God decides, the universe is dissolved. So he is the ruler of Maya. He is also the ruler of the souls. Because if he were not giving life to our soul, we would not even be alive. So he is ruling over us. Yet he doesn't control our actions. One shouldn't take it in that way. That he is controlling our actions or performing our actions. Making us do something like we're some kind of a puppet. And everything we say and do, God is making us do. No, that's not what it means. It means that he is giving us the power to perform our actions. Because he's giving life to our soul. Our soul gives life to our mind. Our mind gives life to our body. And then we can be active and do things in the world. We can think, we can speak, we can do physical actions. But God has given us the power to be able to do that. Yet, having given us that power, He doesn't control what we do with it. But He does keep track of what we do. So He keeps track, and then He gives us the consequences. This is called karma, the law of karma means, according to the good and bad we do, we get good and bad results in our future lifetimes. So God makes sure all of that happens fairly. Thus, He is the Ish. He is the Lord of the souls and of Maya. Thus, He is called Paramatma. He is the supreme soul of all the souls. And He is called Param Purush or Uttam Purush. Purush means someone with a personality who's alive. So he's the supreme personality, the supreme being. We're all beings as well, but he's the supreme being. This is just the first half of that mantra from Shvetashvatra Upanishad, explaining that there are three eternal existences, Maya, the souls, and God. The second half talks about the goal of our life. Tasya bhidhyanad yojanad tatvabhavad bhuyashchante vishvamaya nivritti. The souls are under Maya. There's three things, right? God, souls, and Maya. But right now, Maya is between the souls and God. The souls cannot reach God because of Maya. So the soul can get Vishwamaya Nivritti. The soul can get freed from Maya. How? Tasya Bhidhyanat. Abhidhyanat. Dhyan. Abhidhyanat means joining your mind. Tasya Bhidhyanat with God. If you join your mind with God, if you surrender your mind to God, with God's grace you can get free from Maya. 
in another Upanishad, Katha Upanishad, it talks about how to reach God. Nāyamātmā pravachanena labhyo namedhaya nabahunā śrutena yame vaisha vrinute tena labhyas tasyaisha ātmā vivrinute tanudvam swam You cannot reach God through your own effort. You cannot reach God by being highly intelligent, by studying a lot, by listening to speeches about God, by debating about scriptural philosophy, or even by meditating a lot. How can you reach God? Through His grace. There's no other way. Deva Prasadacha Shvetashvatra Upanishad says, you, only through God's grace can you reach Him. Tapah Prabhavad Deva Prasadacha You do some tap. Tap means effort. What kind of effort? Surrendering yourself to God. If you surrender yourself to God, you receive His grace, and that grace becomes the reason of attaining Him or reaching Him. Nāyamātmā pravachanena labhyo namedhaya nabahunā śrutena yame vaisha vrinute tena labhyas tasyaisha ātmā vivrinute tanugvam swam The second half of that mantra from Kathopanishad that says you can't attain Him through your own personal effort says if He accepts you then that's it. So what is God waiting for to accept us? He's waiting for us to accept Him. If we're saying, no, 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 I don't need you, even if we don't say the words outright, but in other words, our heart is closed to Him, our mind is not surrendered to Him, then how can He grace us? Because He has to grace us in here, in our mind, in, in our antahakaran, whatever you want to call it, mind, heart, antahakaran, inner self, that's where He has to grace us. So if that part, which we are in full control of, is shut to Him, or turned away from Him, how is He going to grace us? Then how is Maya, how are we going to be released from Maya? And how are we going to reach Him? So what the meditation that I'm going to talk to you about this week has to do with how to get our minds surrendered to God. That's it. It's not just a technical meditation because Krishna has already said in Vedas, you cannot reach me through mere meditation. So it's not on the strength of our meditation that we're going to reach God, but the meditation is the means of joining our mind with God. That's the point. If we can join our mind to God, then we start receiving His grace. Think of it like a process where you're gradually, if there's a powerhouse generating electricity, and you want to get some of that electricity to light up something in your house, but you have a faulty connection, then you can't blame the powerhouse, right? 
Oh, powerhouse, you're giving power to everybody. I look around, all my neighbors' houses are lit up. Only my house is dark. This is such an injustice. How can you treat me like this? In other words, God, why have you graced Tulsidas and Surdas and Meera and Shankaracharya and Vallabhacharya? You graced all these other souls and they got God realized and you didn't grace me? What an injustice. I'm also your child. Why haven't you graced me? So the powerhouse says, look, I'm ready and willing to give the power. Look, I'm generating all this power. It's readily available. You haven't made the connection. Make that connection. So the connection means join our mind to God or open our heart to God, which happens through a deliberate process of the mind. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen accidentally or incidentally that one day my mind just attached to God and I got His grace. All those saints who became God-realized, they followed a deliberate process of making that connection with God to receive His grace. So it's a gradual process we have to follow. Just like if you make a little connection, a little bit of current is going to flow along that wire. You can have a little bit of light in your house. So when we make a little bit of a connection with God, we get a little bit of His grace. His grace is like that energy that's being generated. When the powerhouse generates the electricity, then there's a voltage, right? The voltage means that electricity wants to move. The voltage measures the amount of force behind how much that electricity wants to move. There's a, there's a differential, right? It wants to move from here to there. Then once you make the connection, it starts moving. So God's grace is omnipresent. It's an actual power we call Kripa Shakti. That power is omnipresent. It's even in our own mind. But we're not experiencing it simply because we're not making that connection. So when we make the connection, since the voltage is already there, the voltage in this case is God's will to grace us. His will is already there. As soon as we make the connection from our side, the grace starts to flow. Or you can say the grace starts to be experienced in your mind. Because that grace is now starting to soak into your mind, your mind starts getting some effect of that grace. It's not just something that happens and goes unnoticed. If God's grace is coming into your mind, there has to be some effect which is experienced. So the effect of that is that the mind starts to purify, first of all. That divine grace is the ultimate purifier. Like a fire which purifies anything. Doesn't matter what you throw in the fire. Throw a dirty old sock in the fire. What happens to it? It gets purified. It also becomes fire. 
Throw something pure in the fire, it also becomes fire. Doesn't matter, the fire never becomes impure, and whatever contacts it, becomes pure. God's grace is like that. It's the ultimate purifier. As soon as you let it into your mind, the mind starts to get purified. That's the gradual process that happens deliberately to the extent we deliberately attach our mind to God. So how to attach the mind to God? Through meditation. That's the point of doing meditation. If our goal is God-realization. If you have other goals, there are other types of meditations. I'll talk about those tomorrow. But today I'm assuming our goal is to reach God and to experience God. So to whatever extent our mind, let's say we attach our mind 10% to God, then we're receiving 10% of that potential flow of God's grace. It's entering our mind. So we start experiencing, you know, we won't say, oh, I'm experiencing a purifying of my mind. It doesn't feel like that, but it feels like something is happening. You might start to feel a sense of calm, a sense of well-being, a sense of happiness or joy, which is different than the happiness of the world, because this is actually coming from the deepest place in your being, whereas the happiness we experience in the world is on the surface of our conscious mind. Like if you have an ocean, you have the surface of the ocean, which can be very rough, and then you come down deeper and deeper. Once you get below a certain level, it becomes calm, and you can go deeper and deeper all the way to the bottom. Something like that, we have our conscious mind, subconscious mind, unconscious mind, fully unconscious mind, and all the way down at the bottom of our fully unconscious mind is where the soul interfaces with the mind. And there with the soul is Sri Krishna. So God and the soul are together. The happiness we experience in this world, it's all the way up here at the surface in our conscious mind. And it's experienced like an agitation. Both unhappiness and happiness agitate our mind. You may have never really thought about it or analyzed it. But when you're enjoying something, what's really happening? There's a halchal in the nerves of your mind, in your brain. Some excitement, some agitation. And we experience that as pleasure. We call that happiness. Other things like when someone gives us a compliment, when we feel appreciated, when we feel loved, that goes on a little deeper level. But it's still, in the overall scheme of things, it's not, it's still very superficial. Whereas when we receive God's grace, it, pener it penetrates to the deepest levels of our mind because it goes right to our soul. And then it permeates throughout all the layers of our mind. So that's why the devotional happiness that one experiences when you join your mind with God and receive His grace, that's experienced in a different way. 
than worldly happiness. It's on a much deeper level and it just has a different quality. You yourself either know what I'm talking about or you will know what I'm talking about once you experience this kind of thing for yourself. So God's grace has to be experienced. And as it enters our heart, we start experiencing a growing sense of well-being and spiritual happiness. And we'll also notice that the good qualities in our minds start developing more and the bad qualities start reducing. Good qualities like patience, focus, determination, straightforwardness, humbleness, forgiveness, forbearing, all of these good qualities start developing due to the effect of God's grace. And the negative qualities like anger, enmity, animosity, dishonesty, hatred, all of these gradually start reducing due to the effect of God's grace. So, this is only possible when we join our mind with God. So the meditation that I'm going to explain to you throughout this whole week and that we're going to practice as well, this meditation is not just an exercise. It's not a technical mental exercise. It is a deliberate use of our mind to become surrendered to God. We're, we're actually trying to join our mind with God to receive His grace. This is the goal of doing this meditation. Someone may wonder that are other forms of devotion not equally effective in receiving God's grace? Can I not do puja and receive God's grace? Can I not do some fasting or vrat and receive God's grace? Can I not chant God's name, do some kirtan and receive His grace? Can I not visit a holy place or a temple and receive God's grace? Yes, these are all forms of devotion described in our scriptures. There are not only the nine types of devotion described in Bhagavatam, which are most prominently referred to by our saints. There are uncountable possible ways of doing devotion. However, ask yourself or analyze the situation. Out of all of these types of devotion, how many of them are done specifically by the mind? And if they're not done by the mind, then what are they done with? See, our whole personality is made up of three things. Soul, mind, and body. Soul is akarta. Soul doesn't do anything. Soul uses mind and body to perform its actions. So the, the mind and the body are used to perform our actions. 
Although even if we're doing something with our body, the mind is giving the commands, but sometimes also we do things physically without our mind actually being attached to what we're doing. For instance, you could be sweeping the floor in your home and thinking about, oh, when is my son coming home from college? When is my daughter coming home from school? What TV program am I going to watch later today? You're sweeping, but your mind is attached to something else. Similarly, we can do many forms of physical devotion without our mind being attached to God. We can do arti. What are we using to do arti? We're using a sense. In Sanskrit terminology, this is also one of our senses. This is a karma indriya. Karma indriya. Indriya means a sense. So you have some senses of perception, meaning sense of sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. But you have some senses of action. In other words, your hands, your feet, your voice. These are senses of action. So I'm using my karma indriya, my hands, to do arti. My mind could be there with me. It could be somewhere totally different. My hands could be doing the arti, and I could be thinking about what's the score of the football game. This was called by Chaitanya Mahaprabhuji as Anasanga Bhakti. Sangha means the attachment of the mind. So Anasanga Bhakti. Devotion done without the attachment of the mind. What if we're chanting God's name? Again, we're using a karma indriya, our voice. We're chanting Radhe Govinda, Bhajogiri Dhar Govinda Gopal. And our mind could be somewhere else completely. We're just reciting the sounds, the words, and our mind could be thinking about what's for lunch after the production. <laughs> this is Anasanga Bhakti. We could go to the great holy places of India and stand in line for 10 hours to get darshan at Tirupatiji. And the whole time we're standing there, we're thinking my feet are hurting and oh, this person behind me keeps sticking his elbow in my back. And how long is this going to take? In other words, our mind may be nowhere near God. And then when we do get in the mandir, we get the one second darshan and we're pushed on. This is also anasanga bhakti, if our mind is thinking about all these worldly things. So if we are doing anasanga bhakti, we're doing devotion with our senses, with our body, and not with our mind, then how will the mind get purified? How will we receive God's grace in our mind? Remember, to receive God's grace, you have to make the connection. The voltage is there, the potential current is there, ready to flow. We have to make the connection, and that connection can only happen in our mind, and we may be doing all the forms of physical devotion, but if our mind is somewhere else, it's not connecting to God. So then how will we receive His grace? One time there was a sun sammelan happening, where many great religious scholars and 
holy people were gathered and they were giving, having discussions on different topics and giving speeches to the general public. And someone in the general public asked a question that none of those scholars could answer. He said, you know, Gangaji is here flowing nearby and I have bathed in Gangaji many dozens of times in my life. And our scriptures say that when you bathe in Gangaji, all of your sins are washed away. In other words, your heart is purified. But I have bathed in Gangaji so many times, my heart hasn't purified at all. I have just as much anger, just as much worldly attachment and desire. In fact, it's going on increasing. So, has the importance of Gangaji been exaggerated? Or am I doing something wrong? They weren't sure how to answer this question. So they went to another great saint who was nearby. Secretly, a few of those scholars went and met with him and said, you know, someone has asked us this question. We don't know what to say. So he said, oh, there's a simple logic to explain this. To understand, just imagine that I told you to take a bottle and go in that dirty gutter and fill it with that dirty gutter water and seal it up tight and then weigh it down and, and keep it in Gangaji, submerge it in Gangaji, the holy water of Gangaji. Because when that water from the gutter enters Gangaji, it becomes Ganga. So it's purified as soon as it mixes in Gangaji. Therefore, submerge that sealed bottle of the gutter water into the river. And if I told you to keep it there for a day or a week or a month, and then bring it up and open it, would you make use of that water? Would you drink it or use it for some religious purpose? I said, no. Why not? It's been submerged in Ganga for a month. Should be ready to use now. Said, no, 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 but it was sealed in its own container. It never mixed with Gangaji. So he said, do you know where your sins are? They're in your heart. All the impurities are in your heart and mind. So if you are bathing in Gangaji physically, but your mind is not bathing in Gangaji, this thought is not in the mind that, oh, this is a divine river. So I'm entering a divine river. Then Gangaji is entering your heart. Otherwise, no effect. So to whatever extent you have faith in Gangaji, to that extent, she will have a purifying effect in your mind. Oh, now they understood. So it's the same thing. Are you doing Anasanga Bhakti or are you doing Sasanga Bhakti? Sasanga means with the attachment of your mind. So if you visit a holy place thinking that, oh, this is Govardhan Hill, Krishna used to walk here every day, his bare feet have touched the ground here, he used to graze the cows with Balram and the other Gwalbals. If you visit a holy place with that sentiment in your mind, then visiting the holy place has a purifying effect on your mind. 
If you chant God's name thinking, oh, this Govinda name I'm saying, this is Krishna's divine name and he himself is in his name, there's no difference between Nam and Nami, between the name and the owner of that name. In, divine, in the divine world, there's no difference between God and his name. So if we chant Krishna's name with that faith, then it means the name is entering our heart. We're not just chanting some sounds. Then we're doing sasanga bhakti. Then the name can have a purifying effect on our heart. So our mind has to be engaged in devotion to God. And if it's not, no amount of devotion will have any purifying effect on the mind. One time in Mathura, there were some uh, men, they had a little bit of intoxicant, some harm. And it was the night, they decided, uh, oh here we are on the ghat next to Yamuna River in Mathura. Why don't we head down, down just downstream is Prayag, Triveni, modern day we call it Allahabad. Where Ganga, Yamuna, and Saraswati rivers all meet. Such a holy place. The king of holy places. Prayagraj. Let's get in this boat and go down. The current goes in that direction. If we paddle the whole night, we should reach there by morning. Okay, so they all get in the boat and they start pulling and paddling. The whole night goes by. And in the morning when it started to get a little bit light, one of those men, looking at the scenery along the side of the river, says, Isn't it interesting how the scenery along here, the buildings and temples and things here in Prayag, they look very similar to the ones in Mathura. So another one looks and says, Yes, you're right. Another one looks, it's uncanny, it's so similar. Another one looks and he says, This is Mathura. That mandir is Mathura, this building, these are the same, we're in the same place we were last night. And then he looks behind and he sees, oh, we forgot to untie the boat. <laughs> so they did a lot of physical activity but got no actual result from it. That means if we're doing physical devotion to God without our mind attached in God, then it looks like we're doing something. But internally, we're not getting any purifying effect from that. So our bhakti has to be done with the mind. This is the main point that I'm making today. If we want to get God's grace, we have to join our mind with Him. And there are many, many different ways of doing devotion to God, but whichever way we choose to do, our mind must be involved. And to involve the mind, we must do Rupdhyan. What is Rupdhyan? Holding the image of God in your mind. Let's say you're worshipping Krishna. If you're not thinking of Krishna, how is it possible to be worshipping Krishna? Like I said, you may be chanting his name, you may be doing his arti, you may be doing a vrat, doing some fasting for him. But if you're not thinking of him, if his form is not in your mind, then 
how could you say that your mind is attached to him or that your mind is engaged in thinking of him? In this world, when you think of someone, don't you think of their form? If I say, think of your husband, immediately your husband's face and form comes in your mind. If I say, think of your wife, immediately your wife's face, form comes in your mind. So if we are thinking of Krishna, his form must be in our mind. If we have forgotten about him, then our mind is somewhere else. And there's only two options, right? There are three things that exist. Souls, God, and mind. So if we're not thinking of God, then our mind is in the world. And if it's in the world, how is it attached to God? It's not. This is why Dhyan is so important. We have to attach our mind to God by thinking of His actual form. Through doing that, we gradually create a connection with Him, and through that connection, we receive His grace, and that grace becomes the cause of our spiritual progress. And spiritual progress means purification of the mind. This moves us towards our ultimate goal. So from tomorrow we will continue with more details. I'll start with asking the question, why is attaining God our goal? Why is our goal not just to enjoy this world? Because that's also a possibility. We could just try to get happiness from this world. That's one possible goal of our life. Or the goal of our life could be to experience and attain God. So why is the ultimate goal of a soul to attain God? I'll explain that. And I'll also get into more details about worshipping God through meditation. One thing that we have to address is, why do we need a form of God to meditate on? Can't we meditate on a formless God? Then it wouldn't be Rupdhyan, right? But Rupdhyan is very important. So why do we need the form to meditate on? And why is God actually the ultimate goal of every soul's existence? I'll start explaining more about that from tomorrow. And we'll also start discussing more of the practical aspects of actual meditation. Buli Vinda Bandi Hari So we'll finish today by doing a little bit of meditation and then some chanting. What is
<coughs> Once you've received the sheet that has the words for the chanting we'll be doing, you can close your eyes. We're going to be chanting a kirtan about Krishna, so why don't we also think of Krishna's form? We don't want to just have the next 20 minutes go by with us moving our mouth and using our voice to chant Krishna's name and chant words about Him. We actually want our mind to be engaged in thinking of Him. So in order to do that, we want to actually bring the form of Krishna in front of us. So with closed eyes, try to do that. Picture Shri Krishna in front of you. You can take the help of the beautiful murtis if you want. You can look at the form of Krishna depicted in the murtis of the mandir. Or you can think of any other murtis that are dear to you or a picture or painting that you've always liked that depicts Shri Krishna. And use that to help you imagine Shri Krishna's form. Now that he's here in front of you, as we do the chanting, whenever your mind goes somewhere else, just notice that it's gone away. We're going to talk about techniques to help you get better control over your mind later this week. But for now, just notice that, okay, my mind's gone back to a worldly thing. And when you notice, bring it back to Krishna. It's going to happen multiple times. Your mind is not habituated to thinking of Shri Krishna yet. It's more habituated to thinking about the world. So don't worry if it keeps going back to worldly things or thinking of other people. Just notice that it has and bring it back to Krishna. The form that you imagine does not have to be anything absolutely a certain way. Whatever way you want to think of Krishna is fine. The shape of his face, his age, how tall he is, what he's wearing, all of that you can do according to your own likings of your own mind. As long as you have the feeling that this is Krishna in front of you, then he will accept your meditation and grace you for your effort. You should just have that faith that this is real Krishna that I'm seeing. And even if you can't see him, if your imagination is not that strong, you should feel his presence, that he is right here with you now. So maintain that visual effort and that feeling that Sri Krishna is with you as we do this chanting. The chanting also is us talking to Krishna. We're asking him to grace us. And we're 
acknowledging our eternal relationship with Him.